Mira and Peter. You're listening to the Mind Takeaway podcast, where we talk about all things mind-related and embrace what it is to be human in an age of technology, digitalization, and information overload. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share with your friends. In this episode, our guest is Sergei Merievsky, artist, sculptor, and activist. We spoke about his work creating giant metal creatures, his love of the natural world, and the conservation work he does. Sergei gives us his take on what is creativity. We touch on the subject of connection and the therapeutic benefits of art. What you will notice from our conversation with Sergei is his passion for nature and the work he does. We could have spoken for hours as he drew us into his world and gave us an insight into what it's like to be an apex predator, but also the connection we have with the natural world and why it is so important to get curious about our surroundings. Which leads us to take better care of the planet's resources because we are also a vital part of that whole fragile ecosystem that Mother Earth provides for us. As there's a few visual references during this conversation, we will provide further images and links with the details for this podcast. Enjoy listening. Okay, so hi everyone. I'm with Sergey, and he's actually an artist and you could say a zoologist. I think it would be, I guess, a disservice to limit him to a few labels. So welcome, Sergey. What's up? Welcome. <laughs> Yeah, so just to um, just so people listening can get a flavor of what you do, can you frame it for us? In the frame of zoology and art? Yeah, I mean, all my life I spent around an artist, my father, and a biologist, also my father. And then all of that was nurtured and kind of brought to the forefront by my mother, who read to me books about animals. And... Lions, tigers, jaguars, saiga antelope, argali sheep, all those arcane, weird, faraway creatures were very much like right here in my mind, in my forefront. And to make them real, I kind of just downloaded them out of the books and into paper maquettes that I played with. And later on, I found that I don't really need paper maquettes. I could just have, you know, I had this bones. Bones were my structure. And then off of that, kind of married the two together in, in learning and reading the blueprints of bones and then making those very animals, the ones that I found the most fascinating. And um, that's just kind of been my beacon. And then I think in... I think just by way of trying to find the most efficient way of, 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 of learning, I just went right for the top, the, car, the top carnivores, the lions, the tigers, the bears, the wolves. And later I found out, okay, there's the context of them, their, their ecology, how they have a top-down effect. And then they're the most obvious creatures that have their interactions with us. So, so yeah, that, that's kind of where where my mind is at in regards to the art and the zoology and the bridge between the two. Yeah, I found it really interesting that um, you started off with the apex <laughs> predators. Yeah. And obviously we'll share for people listening so, um, some links so they can see the visual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But correct me if I'm wrong, your actual pieces of art that, I've, that, you know, that you were kind to share with me, they've got so much movement in them, even though they're static. And 
your weapon of choice, so to speak, as an artist seems to be, is it, it seems like it's steel, no? The weapon of choice is, the weapon of choice is the, the most badass, deadly mammals on earth. And I choose to make that weapon out of steel. And what made you pick steel over all of the other things you have? Yeah, mati- funky yeah. materials yeah. that you have at your... It's the thing. It's like, why would you... It's a, it's a tough material. It's awful to work with. I've, I've... A lot of the pieces, and also my technique is, is to blame, but I've had times where I'm like, my hands, they're just absolutely ruined. But it's a very tough and very... It's a material with a lot of character that I think embodies and captures and elicits the same feeling that that those those animals have when they're when the piece is done. Steel is taut and and kind of contorted in in the musculature of these these animals in a very dynamic and tactile and and and, and um an affective in an affective way to the touch. And also by way of circumstance, when I was 13 years old, I, was in, I went to an art program in my high school and they had 2D and 3D art and both of them were pretty regimented and regimented and I was not really able to kind of make animals, but welding allowed me to just use, I mean, that's basically a giant glue gun where you're allowed to put in two pieces of steel together and mold this material that is very tough and, and completely resistant. So I think all those things combined together really well in portraying these animals. Plus, there's also the aspect of like knife, gun, car, all these modern links that we have with steel that are not associated with the organic, flowing, musculature shape of life. So all those things kind of came together as a circumstance, but also as like, okay, there's a skill here, there's a, there's a way of expressing, there's a way of making that product, that kind of way. Yeah, that's, that's really clear. Thank you. And <laughs> so just to go back a little bit, I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, currently you have a studio in Budapest, is that right? Budapest, yes. Um, again, not the full history, but just a bit of background as to where you're from originally and how you ended up back in Budapest. <laughs> okay, the abbreviated version. I was born and raised in Switzerland to Russian parents who immigrated um, to who immigrated out of, out of Russia. Uh, upon my birth, I went to school. I started school in Switzerland, so I went to a French school. I never really learned Russian, um, and re- I, I spoke Russian, but I never learned how to read or write, or I never I never got proficient at it. My second language at four years old was French. And from there, I kind of really switched. I thought, dreamt, talked to myself in French. Still interacted with my parents in, in, in Russian, but like my me was French. And then when I was and when I was six years old, I started to learn English. 10 years old, I went to a British high school in Switzerland. And that's when the switch happened completely. That's when I started to think, dream, speak to myself and become and i just kind of my identity was revolving around this english which had this american twang to it all the time even though i was around british teachers and then at 15 i left switzerland i'm i left uh home i went to high school in 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 america on the east coast and i did high school in massachusetts and long island i hopped around and that's a whole nother story 
And I graduated from Long Island, went back to Massachusetts, finished university there, and then moved back to Switzerland. And with my momentum of moving back from America, we decided to just leave Switzerland and kind of start off something new. It kind of was also linked with my grandfather, who really liked Budapest. We kind of had some things going on here. And we, we just ended up here. And the first thing I did when I, met, when I came to Budapest was I sought out places, studios, where I could keep working on my craft and perfecting it. And uh, I took a detour in a university where that kind of, I found that as, as great as that program was, it really wasn't nurturing my passion and therefore I retracted from it, but my studio space at that university still remains. So that's why I'm here. That's why, and that's how that's here. Wow. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of travel and I guess exposure to different languages, different cultures that's had an influence on you as an artist and I guess where, you, where, you, where you're heading you know today yeah I definitely I mean I was I was a socially awkward kid and for many different reasons we could talk back about like okay from like the Soviet Union all the you know uh, what is it the epigenetic weirdness that comes from a place from where there's a lot of trauma in the culture then being being taken out of there outrooted it's like a polar bear that's born in like africa and you're just born and you're like what's going on and um all of the language switches and when you're a kid you're around a lot of different stuff but that social awkwardness kind of had given us a real awareness of like there's there's a social aspect to people and I wanted to excel at that and I wanted to become better at it. And through that sort of rise in my understanding of my own self, I became deeply aware of the struggles people go through to become social and to become sort of like better socially integrated. And I saw that manifest itself in a lot of places where I was through my, throughout my life and throughout my, my integration of my own self and myself in society but also the struggle people seem to have in general um, integrating. But then also this process of this, this aspect of integration was linked with integrating the natural world, which I didn't see at all in people. Everything in the education system seemed to be a lot of, a lot of the stuff that people had come up with and a lot less of like the deeper roots of like a, a lot less of the bones that I I'd been taught about, I'd been seeing, and I'd had seen, and I knew, and I felt to be an emanation of a story much deeper and much truer and much more all-encompassing and something that we all deeply share, not, as a hum not only as humans, but as primates, as mammals, as things with jaws, and as things that have a very, very deep, deep, deep history, which coincidentally was kind of where, where, where coincidentally I find myself really at the crossroads of, you know, like the theory of evolution had only been around for 150 years and I was this random just particle moving out from Russia, landing in this context where I had this English language, but also these books. And then this context that kind of rooted me in this very weird and deep way. So... I'm not sure if I'm really answering the question, but that's kind of um, that, that, that's where my fascination with 
not only animals, but also people in the context of, of animals came from. And what I saw was just, what I saw and keep seeing was, is, it, is this disconnect that we have from, from our own nature. And um, my motivation from coming from, you know, a place of, of struggle, a place of immigration, a, a place of disconnection was a desire to connect, to reconnect myself and then to share that connection, to share that, that ability, to share that knowledge with, uh, with others. And, um, and my art is very much, uh, the art, the message behind that is very much of that sort of um, vibration. Mm. It's, it's really interesting uh, that you mentioned art as an expression and something that connects you with who you are mm. and connects you with other people i mm. would assume that, that's quite deep <laughs> yeah i mean and, and it goes back to the deepest and oldest form of art that we have the lascaux the chauvet the bones the paintings all of that stuff is emanations of like the there's all kinds of interpretations that are all kinds of speculative and probably wrong or probably right or probably wrong, but either way, speculation. But what it says is here's us and here's them. Here's our shape and here's their shape. And this shape is a shape that we share and our shapes, our shape, our, our shapes share interactions in this goal, in this whole greater whatever the hell this is, and that we're all connected. And, you know, the, the potential dark places that I've been through, that I've been in, I, I, I found myself drawing a lot of strength and a lot of power and a lot of empowerment from, well, from the most powerful beasts that we have today. Lions, tigers, saber-tooths, which are thankfully not around, bears. All those things felt profoundly nutritious and empowering in my little mind. And then, I, you know, as, as, as I got older and as I, as I matured, I found myself seeing how nutritious and profoundly influential and profoundly useful these very creatures are to the creation of landscapes which are nutritious and, 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 and valuable to us. And our systematic destruction of those landscapes in the at the same time. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you've really captured the movement and the essence of these creatures. And what really resonated with me is, you know, really wanting to see them in the natural world. Because I know that, you know, Obviously, the first time we met, we talked about how, you know, we're losing so many of these creatures every week. You know, something enters the extinction list or it disappears altogether. Lions, lions, could you, like, lions are endangered? Like, yeah. lions are like, there's a lot less lions. Yeah. You, you actually not only captured the essence of these creatures and the movements in your art, but I know that you are passionate about the ecological side of things and you've been very active already mm. and actually how we ended up connecting was through one of my coaching colleagues and you actually met while you were volunteering can you just um tell us a little bit about that yes i um 
again, it, 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 I found myself being really passionate about the prehistoric things. And I was like, ah, you know, I could disregard the modern things. I have the bones, whatever. And I'd been to Africa before I was nine years old. And I, it was, it was a profoundly shocking and, and I honestly, I don't really remember much of it. I just know that I went in there as one person at nine years old and I left. It was different. Things were different. Things were completely different. And, um, upon, the BBC's release of a documentary about honey badgers and me recalling of seeing that same facility when I was younger, I decided to volunteer and see and go. And I went multiple times and I found myself completely out of tune with the actual landscape and places where people live and share the landscape with lions, elephants, and, and, and very, very dangerous creatures. And, um, well, that place really put me on the battlefront of the wildlife conservation issue of like where lions are killing people and people are killing lions. And this is all kind of come to be completely imbalanced given the, the current context. And I found myself being very inspired and very touched by the stories that I heard and, and the people that I've met and their commitment and their, um, their also their 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 shared disbelief that this is happening that the wild is no longer this vast expanse it's just kind of it's these islands that have become reduced to these fenced areas to accommodate you know tourism and to keep people to keep people and wildlife separated which is exactly what needs to happen because lion survivorship in places where there's fences is for obvious reasons way up because no people are coming in to kill them and there's no conflict. But there's also this profound dis disconnect between the, the ways and the, and the range that and the ecological role that lions occupied over a land, large landscape and the current knowledge and the current understanding and the current context in the greater culture of big predators. So this, this, this vast disconnect is where I found myself to be, to be in. And I repeatedly returned to that facility to, well, to experience the wildlife, to experience lions, to experience uh, the wild, but also to work and to see and to feel and to understand the conflicts and the and the issues that surround with that, that surround the issues that surround the future of the most powerful architects of the landscapes that again make these very landscapes nutritious enough to provide for us. Yeah, it's. I mean, I I could ask you now, you know. What do you think what happened with us as, as human beings? Are we using our humanity? Uh, or, or maybe just to, to ask you, what do you think what we need to change? Or what we need to understand in order to do something about it? Because we're obviously oblivious of what's going on. What we need to understand is just a very few basic things, I think. And we need a base. 
And that base is very simple. The earth is round, apples fall from trees, and we're monkeys. From there, everything else can flow. And from those basic assumptions come the assumptions that the earth is finite. There's no more pointing them, 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 because the earth is round and very sort of, if you do some mental gymnastics, that finger's coming back around and pointing right at you. There is no fence. There is no other person. We all share the same bones. We all share the same movement. We're a particle that, we'll not get into that. That's a different theory. But um, <laughs> apples fall from trees. There are certain limitations and constraints, physics and chemistry, that govern the world. And then the ultimate biology, the monkey, the ape, further constrains us in, in this bucket where this is who you are. You're not this expansive thing, this ethereal whatever. No, you're, you're this. You're a monkey, you're an ape, but you're profoundly powerful, you're profoundly social, and you're profoundly also disconnected from the flesh and bones because we think we're different, we think we're eternal, we think, we, we think whatever we think. We, we don't think in the context of Family, earth, future, home. And currently, there's all kinds, we can tout all kinds of problems, societal. That's great. Those are great. It's great to know the issues, but the way forward is healing. We need to heal ourselves, our body, our mind. We need to come back. We need to become embodied back into this meat suit, meat spaceship. And then from there, we need to connect to our breath, to our breathing, to our breathing vibration. And then from there, if various people, for various people, it's going to be a very a different path. You know, for, for me, it's easy to say I was born in a very privileged background and I was able to travel around the world. But for someone born in a village in India, outside of a tiger reserve, where grandfather was killed by a tiger and all of a sudden there's a tiger coming in. You know, it's great to be embodied, but right here, right now, there's a striped killer in our midst. And just today, I mean, right before the podcast, there was a video that, was, that came live. A tigress came into the village and then she was beaten to death by st st with sticks. Um, we're all in a very in a very precarious situation, all of us to varying, varying degrees, but the people that those of us who aren't in such a dire strait, where those of us who don't have lions at our door, we have the responsibility to see the issues that are being presented on the BBC, on the news, and then to do something about it, be it by connecting with our breath and do some breath work or by doing some breath work and then try traveling there and then teaching people how to empower themselves, empower others, become more connected with themselves, heal, reduce the amount of children that, they, that people make because then we're able to nourish kings and queens and princes and princesses because that's what we're the best at doing. We're the best creature at providing love, motherhood, and then fatherhood to 
create the space for motherhood and love and then creating the one child, the one daughter, the one child, the one son that's going to be able to be the most powerful version of themselves and then before and then address the population increase that we have but also address the fact that we create individuals who are more expansive and vast and powerful as opposed to creating individuals who are weak weakened and disempowered and unable to have an impact and in this day and age of connection where we are able to see, we are able to witness, we are able to, for, for, I mean, for hell's sake, I know that in some arcane village in India, a tiger, was, a tiger died. Yeah. Where I see incredibly powerful leverage point in our time. Yeah, totally see where you're coming from. I can resonate with a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, and I've seen a similar story where it broke my heart uh, because of the monsoons and the weather. You know, it can be a bit erratic. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the whole climate change issue on this. It's a different topic, but, um, you know, a, ti a tiger, a female tiger, seeked refuge inside a villager's home. Luckily, no one was injured, mm -hmm. but she fell asleep. She escaped the flood, and she was one of the lucky animals to escape the zoo because actually it broke my heart. Most of them actually drowned or perished. And, yeah, there's an issue, as you say, where their natural habitat is becoming an island. It's so small. Yeah, and then you've got the human population that's encroaching onto that small island. Mm -hmm. And as you say, when there's no education in terms of, you know, they're just surviving and, you know, they're living a simple life. They're just doing the best they can. They're doing, I guess, what makes sense to them. There's going to be a clash. And unfortunately, because we are the top of the food chain, it's usually the, um, the creatures that are in short su supply that's end up perishing right so i guess i mean for people listening what can we really do i guess we have to start with ourselves right yeah what we can do and what the first thing we should do is we should not place blame i was i was firmly in the and, and it's an obvious sort of thing there jane goodall uh really elucidated this uh this this concept for me was in Gombe, around Gombe National Park, there's a lot of villagers, a lot of people that are, that are displaced. And the evil farmers, how dare they, the evil farmers, encroach on the chimpanzee's habitat? How dare they? They destroy the chimpanzee's habitat. But we're not taking into account the historical context. These are people that have been displaced and marginalized and with the, with the, with the coming of the colonists, all of the most powerful, higher functioning people were displaced, leaving only struggling, disconnected, hungry bands of people who had had no choice but to try to like, I need to just plant a seed right now to get a crop right now for this year and then the next year, we just pray. We just pray that the rains come. So how dare they, these people? Uh, how dare they go put out a snare so that they can feed their family? Yeah, it's, it's awful. Snaring is terrible. Snaring is an awful way to die. But it's an awful way to live when you have seven kids and a wife that's carrying a, your eighth. And you don't know if that's, that kid's going to survive. And you, know, you don't know what other traumas await, await you, what other taxation, what other pain, what other drain, what other 
trauma awaits you and what other insecurities, instabilities awaits your family. So you got to just live right here, right now. And placing blame on those people is... It, 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 it doesn't do anything. So the it just disconnects. Um, it, 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 just, it just breeds more disconnect. Whereas if you come from a place of these people need help, these people need education, these people need... And there's, there's also a risk side to that where you, you come in and you create the victim. You want to empower people. You want to empower local people. You want to empower, empower local youth, local women. Massive, massive, massive investment in women. Like, because women create cohesion, be it in a lion pride or in a human family. The women create cohesion. And you help those communities rise by reducing, by, by, better, by better education of reproductive health, by better education on the land, by better management of the land, and then by creating income where the very animals that are injurious and dangerous are in a healthy way separate, but also respected and valued as a commodity and, an, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a source of flow, income, and um, interest from the outside world, as well as, as well as understanding the ecosystem services that elephants, lions, and tigers, and whatever provide for those very local people, and creating a, a domain in which those people can benefit from those very, very, um, very services by way of hunting, by way of collecting honey, by way of of having a healthy exploitation of the land that's around you. Mm, beautifully said and and it all goes back to connection and the opposite disconnection yeah so with ourselves and and you know what i found and and peter and probably you as well and probably everybody who is a little bit more connected with themselves the more you're connected with yourself uh, the more you see and more you do more action you take mm -hmm. that is purposeful yeah. for others mm -hmm. yeah the more connected we are to ourselves and then you know what makes sense to you because you get curious about the world around you and then you realize that you know we've we've touched on this in, in this conversation already that you know earth itself it's a closed system we're all part of that one system and it's really it, it, it always it's always strange for me in the media when someone says we're killing the earth no we're actually going to wipe ourselves out as a species and the earth will just reset um and yeah. then another another creature will you know evolve and we will be no more so i guess the the more we connect with each other and the planet and realize the impact that we have in everything that we do you know whether it's the food we eat um the the things we consume um you know it, it then becomes less sense to you to for example litter or buy lots of plastic or you know not to share your wealth and resources with other people because yeah. let's be honest it, it seems strange that we as humans we seem to I, I guess more in the west 
um, or at least that's been our experience on our travels, that we like to accumulate wealth, but for what purpose? Just in case we need it and status and, you know, shiny things. You know, what you, once you're connected with humans, the planet, other animals, you do not need to then go out and do any damage because it's actually very difficult to do that because it really makes no sense to you, right? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I had I felt the same way in Mongolia where I where I, I I was hanging out with people. I was on a program. I was 17 years old, and it was a bunch of American kids and myself. Um, part of this program where we just went out with a family and explored just a little area and. The, the heart openness of the people and the heart opening that you feel when you're there with another guy your age and you guys have no, nothing in terms of your life experience in common, let alone your language, and you find yourself vibing and laughing and joking and, and participating in the same experiences. And so, and this, this, the materialist perspective does not provide us with the right guidance in order to connect with that aspect of ourselves. However, this pursuit of the material, which is which needs to be seen in, in the context of the in, in its historical context, is very much linked with possession, lack of possession, the possession vacuum, the want for resources, the war of ideologies, which is why wars happen and then the competitive nature of war where the soviet union found itself in against pitted against against um america and all these negative aspects kind of came together came kind of manifest themselves as a result but ultimately we can then now come back full circle and then come back to what the ancients probably knew was that the earth is finite, the earth is round, the earth is this, and earth is material now. It's become this, it's a rock in space. It is material, it is physical, it is, uh, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's like the, it's, it's this, the phone, it's, it's limited, but so is the earth. And our ability to, to, to get to that and see atop of that in, in the context of Charles Darwin, in the context of all the awful, awful, awful stuff that happened in the wake of Charles Darwin's travels and colonization and everything, we are now here and able to sort of to pick up a chimpanzee skull and a human skull and be like, oh, the bones is the language that links us, links the meta, the flesh, the brain, the neurology, the stuff that decays with the material, the solid, the earth, the bones. And, sorry, and, 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 and then and my, not fear, but the daunting perspective is to show and, and, and portray that and then ultimately make people feel that because this is, I, I literally have lion skulls because <laughs> what does this feel like? We interact with the world through maps. My friend, he's, he's, a, he's a social psychologist, and I was like, so, and I really kind of try to dig deep with him. We are not in our head. We are not the bodies that we see in the mirror. We are the seeker, the smeller, the whatever that 
only when you are able to map out your physicality by going to the gym, by interacting with the world and understanding your own bones, can you understand what this feels like. Mm-hmm. And then you understand what this is. And it feels like lions. <laughs> and that is ultimately what I want to try to portray is through my art, through the imagery, through the footage that we are able to see now of lions and their behavior and to see the mother and see the father and see the males and see this, is that we are able to see and feel and understand what it feels like lions. And that is ultimately what I'm, if I just wrap up here, is lions, tigers, bears, shrews, whales, mice, or profoundly earth-affirmative, earth-affirmative vibrations. They are vibrations of the universe. And the lion and the tiger and the polar bear and the carnivore are the ultimate, I think, embodiment of that energy, as much as we are the ultimate embodiment of that energy. But we are not lions. Mm we can draw inspiration from them. Yes, it seems like we we um, we live in some illusion of separation that isn't really real. And and seeing that can can change a lot. The way to see that is when you're in a feeding cage. When you're walking outside of a cage where a lion is feeding, it's a small little thing. There's roof tinning, tin roofs, roofing on the side, and there's a tiny little crack. Where the lion has got the bead on you right now. And all of a sudden, you're right here, you're right there, you're made out of meat. And there's no more separateness anymore. You know exactly what's going on. Luckily, there's a fence, but... But, but that one can easily go down, isn't it? At times. Yeah, but like... I mean, yeah, God forbid. But right there, like there's a very real connection of like, okay, I am, I am all of a sudden very vulnerable and very, very, very exposed. And that's a great feeling because then you're humbled. Because you're humbled. You're no longer this... Hmm. You know what's really interesting? What comes to my mind right now, as you said, vulnerable. Um, it seems like allowing ourselves to be in that space of vulnerability is is, is allowing connection. Uh, and when we protect ourselves with uh, with fears and that that creates separation, yeah. guilting people or you know whatever, everything else causes separation. But we are very very uncomfortable being in in this vulnerable state and uh, we are trying to change it and build into this separation over and over and over again i i was recently talking to a friend of mine and trying to tell her about how we were talking about dogs and um everyone has like people like if someone kills a person ah, it happens every day if someone kills a dog, that doesn't go. That hits us very deeply inside. And um, dogs and wolves are a great model because they're social carnivores and they have this sociality to them. And for the sake of the, the analogy, everyone is like a dog. Every man, woman, every person 
Every person wants to be a good dog. Every human, every person has a good dog inside. But some people, a lot of people throughout their life have experienced a lot of bad dog. You're a bad dog. You're a bad dog. Bad dog. Bad dog. Bad dog. Bad dog. Flexion, 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 flexion. Posterior extension, flexion, 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 protection, protection, protection. What does a dog do? You come in and pet that dog, a pet you pet the dog that's been has been told he's a bad dog all his all his life. He's like, I want to be a good dog, but yeah, but I'm scared, I'm twitchy, I have this, I have trauma in my muscles that are triggered by your presence. And I do not have the ability, the serotonin, the love. I was given a smaller dose of love. I cannot expand and therefore I bare my teeth. I bare my teeth and I have my tail underneath my, my, beneath my legs. I'm a scared dog. I've been told I'm a bad dog. And again, everyone, everyone wants to be a good dog. Everyone wants to heal. Life wants to expand. Life wants to live. Life wants to, life wants to be like this. Life wants to open its heart. But throughout our evolution, throughout our biological and then cultural evolution, not everyone has had the opportunity to be like that. There's been an up, there's been a king and a slave. There's been that, 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 that divide. For resource partitioning, sure. But now we're coming in an age where there's always going to be dominance hierarchies. But we're now at an age where we're able to... The highest of the high, I mean, like, like you can't go like... I mean, there's a certain level where you're good. But the levels of hell are pretty damn deep. But nowadays, we're able to rise... And the margin of, of like low, lowborn. If you're watching Game of Thrones, lowborn to highborn, it's no longer this huge disparity. It's it's you know it's, it's fairly there. Like the average American, five hundred, like the average American two hundred years ago, the difference between like the lowest of the low and the president was pretty vast. Mm. Now everyone's got two cars, and like the vast majority of the people. Yeah, yeah, they don't live in Trump Tower, but like they have a house, they have a car. Yeah, the, there is a, that, that physical separation in between us is um, is 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 much much smaller. But uh, it seems like we have mentally disconnected from each other a lot. So yeah, I mean, yeah, let's connect. But uh, I think Peter wanted to ask something about. Um, um, creativity that comes into play with all of this isn't it yeah and just you as an artist i mean we've talked about you know your background and how you ended up gravitating towards the more anat anatomical level of creatures and why and it makes total sense i mean it's exciting to watch these creatures um you know we've covered some of the i wouldn't say negative but you know the shame that these creatures may no longer exist, you know, even in the decade, you know, but 
if we focus on the positive and what we can do going forward, and obviously you've been active, involved in, you know, non-for-profit and organizations where you've tried to, or not tried, but you have already given time, money, resources, and, you know, focused on trying to do what you can, right? Mm -hmm. How do you see technology playing a positive part? Because technology is obviously can be really damaging, but the way we see it, um, and especially clearly really now is around the fact that technology is neutral and it's us as humans if we're clear of mind and like we discussed if we're connected to the earth and we're mm -hmm. connected to who we really are and we want to help and share and you know add to both humanity and the planet then how do you see creativity and technology in what you're doing and do you see that as an enabler or 230% enabler. Two, two ways of te two ways technology has absolutely revolutionized everything we know about, everything we know and the way we know animals. One of those things is right here in my room. And um, our primary sense as a, as a primate is our eyes. And the camera is just an extension of our eyes. Mm -hmm. And the ability for a camera to be left out in the environment to be disassociated from, from us, to be left alone, and to just see, 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 without our interference, has allowed us, has allowed me to see more pictures of more individual snow leopards, snow leopards, clouded leopards, all the big cats, than anybody has ever done in the history of people. And I will say that with the utmost confidence. I have seen more lions, more tigers, more jaguars, more rare cats than anybody has, has before. And, and not just me, anybody ever on the internet. I can, I mean, right now, this technology, our connection has allowed us to be like, hey, I'm in Hungary. You guys in India, stop beating up the tigers. That's one aspect of it. The fact that we can see, the fact that our vision is now on an individual level, our vision is world, worldwide, planetary-wide, and planetary system-wide. And then there's also the fact that we're, we're connected as people through, you know, whatever we do. But then our technology for making things, the welding, the wood, the materials have also evolved and the methods have evolved and the, and the means by which we can bring the, those creatures into our lives through technology has also provided us with this bridge, this connection. Mm. Just touching on technology again, thank you for that because you made it really clear about some of the benefits for you in mm. terms of how you can capture, you know, the movements of animals, yeah. how you can connect. Um, I, can, I, I go, I go, I go hunting on the internet for trophies and bones, and mm. then I download them out of the screen and make them and make them real. I go and use my little piece of plastic with a credit card, and I download a piece of plastic that comes into my doorstep that is the shape of a lion's bones and teeth. Mm. Not only from one that's modern, like that was a modern lion from Africa, and then I can go on the internet and go and look at not only the shape of this lion's skull that I've known about since I was 10 years old, but I can, with the click of a button, 
get a skull of a lion from Alaska. And then I can get on that same device and just do a bunch of reading about like, oh, people thought they were tigers, but then they did some genetic research and then they looked at like some bones and then they realized, no, 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 it is actually a lion. So if that's the, so correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like that's a good starting point for you. So you get hold of a part, a bone, a skull, um, you know, parts of that animal that you're interested in that obviously gets you excited and you can resonate with. So then as you as an artist, can you just explain to people listening, what would be the process for you then? How would you then use that as a starting point for a project? How would that, how would that look to you? Well, it starts with, it starts with looking at what's going on today at interactions at what kind of, it, it starts with looking at, okay, this skull, what does it do? It doesn't do dog things. It does cat things. Okay. There's certain rules to being a cat. Cats hunt. Cats move a certain way. Okay, let's put the cat in context. It's going to be hunting Ice Age buffalo. What's an exciting pose? What's a pose that is dynamic, expressive, posterior extension, flow, movement, power, strength, and then from there, it's about, it's just about connect. It's about downloading the proportions of the bones, understanding how the bones move. That is where you come in and you understand, oh, the lion map of the bones is the same as yours. Therefore, you can't move like a lion, but you can, you can, you can, you can pretend, you can understand, you could be like, ah, okay, these are the paws, these are the claws, these are what, these are the bones. And then you put the thing into position, that you find exciting that is that has a story maybe a certain bone has a story you want to portray that bones tell incredible stories of survival of struggle of 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 things that are profoundly the same as you you know like you have an injury on your foot arthritis it's painful it radiates through your body you're weaker mm. it could be the same it's the same exact sort of process and and say in a fossil. And do you actually sketch these um, creatures out? Is that, is that part of the process? Because I really enjoyed some of the images because obviously I've seen um, your sculptures and they're amazing, by the way. So, you know, thank you for sharing them. But I've also seen online, um, you have a lot of sketches and it seems very tactile because obviously with technology nowadays, you could get very digital and draw it. But correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, you seem to be... Um, I'm, Again, I'm still, embracing technology, but you're also using, you know, the more traditional things like um, charcoals and those kind of things, right? Well, the, the, um, my journey as a 2D artist is, has been very rudimentary in terms of my, and only now I've really started to really kind of make a push and my sketches are becoming started, starting to evolve. But my process really, again, starts with the bones and starts with skeletons online. I usually get something broadside, disconnect all the bones, throw them on PowerPoint, put a piece of paper on the screen, and then just sketch, connect the dots. It's very simple, very rudimentary, but also quite revolutionary in terms of my uh, understanding and ability to, um, to anticipate and intuit where muscles attach to bone. And I've literally had moments where I was plagued, just absolutely plagued by like, what the hell is the movement of the scapula versus the rotation of the, of the thoracic vertebrae? I have no idea. And I'm just trying to sketch and draw and sketch and draw and it doesn't come out. And I'm just trying to look at bones, trying to look on internet, how things work. 
But the real place where that kind of comes in together, I'll do a rudimentary sketch and then I would start making. And that's where my understanding would come through. And now I'm coming back full circle where I've made another piece that was particularly detailed, where I was particularly um, precise with the bones, therefore allowing me to have better landmarks for this metal sculpture. And then from there, I looked at the final piece and I was like, oh, having made it, I finally have downloaded it. So I've been making animals out of steel. I've been drawing animals since, ever since I was 15, making animals out of steel ever since I was 16. But only now am I really starting to understand and really feel comfortable in getting to another to, to the next level where I'm like, I feel comfortable making further and, and feeling like I've gotten to, to a new breakthrough. And so that's also why I'm, I'm keen on exploring those ideas because I'm really have been, I've been really trying to figure out lines and only now after like all those years of studying, am I getting to a point where I'm like, Oh, I think I've gotten a much bigger picture and it took me a long time. So if I can distill that and then share it, that's awesome. But it, it, it's, it, it's taken that long and it's, and it's still not fully manifest. So that is why I'm still motivated to keep on doing what I'm doing. Mm. Seems like a whole load of curiosity over there. And that's the driving force of creativity, isn't it? Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, I've had to learn how to be, I mean, it started off like, hey, dad, can you draw me a fish? And I'm like, fish. How about a hippo? Hippo. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need you, Dad. I'll just draw my own thing. And I'll just draw it from the thing. And I'm like, this is how it moves. It has, it has, it's a flat piece of paper. It has elbows, it has wrists, it has fingers. And then from there, it's just a matter of like being creative and how to like do it better. So only, all I've done is just gotten better at like seeing an image and just being like, okay, how can I like take it from there to like bloop, put it here. Cool. And as a creative, as an artist, do you ever get a bit stuck? Does that ever, because you seem, you know, just just talking to you, your language, the way you are, you, you always seem very animated. And it actually gets me excited because you always, you know, throw a lot of passion into anything that, you, that we, you know, we've ever talked about. But do you ever get a moment when you get a bit jaded or you're like, oh, shit, I don't know how to approach this now and I'm going to have to park it. What, yeah. what, no. Right now, I mean, right now I'm in a state where my workshop space is a bit of a compromise. I'm like, I, I went there the other day and I'm like, mm, no, this is not the right, this is not the place from which I'm going to create my next piece. Or at least I, I, I feel that way. Because before I had access to the university workshop and then my own sort of creative thing that was supported by the school. So yeah, and, and yeah, I do get stuck. I get, you know, right now I have a Lion King is coming out and I, it has come out and I'm about to see it. And I'm like, I have this want, I mean, I have all these lion skulls behind the screen and I'm like, okay, how could I create this body of knowledge, this body of content that is going to be, that is going to evoke a compelling emotional state that's going to become viral and that's going to really compel people to listen and compel people to, to, to engage. And again, it comes back to, but then the grounding is a compelling emotional state. You as the creator, creator have to handle and take care of the meat vehicle that you're in 
breath, the right food, the right influences, the right place, and the right creative space in order to manifest, in order to find, in order to, uh, to create. So what I'm starting to get an inkling of is as an artist, you have to always find ways in order to flirt with yourself, in order to titillate yourself, in order to find ways and goals that are appetizing, that are, that are compelling, that are, um, that are challenging, that are, um, that are scary, that are, that can create a compelling emotional state within. And then how could you best manifest that compelling emotional state within the piece that you're making? And then how could you hone, how could you hone thy saber to and that's really cool. So it doesn't sound like you really get stuck. Like anyone, like me, me too, we always have challenges, right? But it sounded like some good tips in there. So if anyone was getting excited listening, listening to our conversation, thought, wow, that's maybe something I'd like to do as well. Then it sounded like you just have to find what excites you, what, what, what gets you passionate, right? And what makes you curious. Is that right? Yeah. Just, I mean, it's about finding, I mean, I've had, as, as I, I'm sure all, I'm sure most, I'm sure artists in general or people in general or specifically artists find, find themselves engaged in their art in a way that is destructive to themselves. Like where you're, you're just like, I'm going to just engage, 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 engage. And then you find yourself no longer engaging for the sake of passion, but engaging to escape a certain aspect of your life, which you have disregarded and you think you could patch up with your art, like social, like being social. Yeah. So you're saying as well, it's, um, it's therapeutic, right? I mean, that seems to be the universal currency or the, the same thread. Every time we speak to an artist and I can, ex you know, appreciate that myself you know, making music as well. It's very therapeutic, right? That, you know, it, as you said before, it enriches you. You know, it, it's, it closes that loop because it connects you back to the source, right? Yeah. And, and with that said, I mean, <laughs> this might be quite a wide one, but well, what do you think creativity is and where does it come from? I mean, what's a lot about? It, um, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And um, I'll come at it from the perspective that I've been flirting with and don't like i don't like it that i've come up with that idea i don't like it i i i think about it and i think about it in terms of my art and i'm like oh there's such a bad and negative way of looking at it but it comes from trauma trauma is if you have trauma that's good <laughs> and well no if you have trauma you have trauma anyway but like anyone has everyone has their level of whatever but if um if there's a trauma that can like fuel you and like provide, um, it provides fire, it provides motivation. And if there's a way to harness that and channel that into your, into your uh, art slash therapy, that's awesome. But then again, it's also one of those things where it's like, you don't just spend all day, all week with your therapist. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, love, I love what you said about that because of course the, the the rich tapestry of our actual personal experience really does come into our art 
But what you're not saying, right, is that you need to have gone through trauma to be an artist, right? Not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. Um, although I can't speak, I, I can't speak to this to the utmost, to my fullest strength uh, and with full confidence, but art does not always have to come from trauma. It can come from a, a variety of different things. <laughs> but uh, if, if, if it all, if, if it, if it kind of helps frame it in a different way, I think the, the, the path of creativity is one of a individual walk uh, towards a, towards a domain towards a domain of, 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 of one owns one's own creation. So for example, there's established domains out there in the world, say for example, biology and how to fix a car. Those are domains, right? They're not, where are they We're geographically in regards to each other? Who knows? Who cares? Um, but it is the goal of the artist to shoot and to shoot directly in between whatever domains they find compelling in a direction that they themselves find interesting, that smells good, that feels like a good direction, and honing in on that direction, and honing in, and honing in and finding in another direction, honing in and finding another, honing in and finding another, and perpetually moving in and sharpening that skill in order to create something that best represents, best captures, best distills um, that idea, that emotion, that feeling. I mean, if you're, you, you know, in music, for example, you may go out and bump yourself up against the world, be it whatever it may be. It may, it may be a sexual interaction. It may be uh, seeing a goat in the mountains and then you come in and you're like, okay, I know, I know how it feels. It feels, it feels like, it feels like lions. How can I best distill and portray that feeling and how could I best yeah so one last final final point on that is the my, my previous my a really good friend of mine um, she did her final dissertation on exhibit design and the goal was how could you best project a piece of work in order for people to learn what that piece of work is trying to teach and again it's that honing in that 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 sharpening of whatever is in here and the best way to like sublimate and project it out in the real world yeah i mean i really like that and yeah i mean that, that's that's what it is creativity right it's a very innate thing all of us as humans have it whether we apply that as an artist or not our whole experience through our life our past where we are now it's it's another language you know it's a currency so it's a way that we share what we've experienced um, yeah and um, i think sorry go on yeah just from from us being scavengers of bone to us breaking bone and that bone breaking stone to stone breaking bone and making marks on bone to bone having marks on it being used as a reference in the landscape to then being used as a market thing as a signpost that shows certain elements and then from there it's just about being creative and creativity is sexy and then creative creativity is just 
it's its own, it, 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 it then took on its own momentum that allowed us to creatively solve the existential problems of our species to get to the point where we are today. Yeah, and that brings us all the way back to where we started, right? Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, I mean, it closes the circle. I mean, we as humans, if we embrace that, and, and what that means is actually embracing what it is to be human, that means we end up being able, as you said, to resolve all of the challenges that we face. And just to, just to round it off, if, um, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, whether you want to connect and learn more about what you do, or see some of the current projects you have, but and also stuff you've done in the past as well. Where can they get in contact with you? Uh, they can get in contact with me through my Instagram. Um, I guess you'll post the link somewhere. You yeah. will for sure. Yeah. yeah. Instagram. My Instagram is just kind of a, a work in progress where I want to put up the stuff that I'm excited about, uh, the things that I'm working on. Um, my Facebook is a great place to find me uh, and basically a stream of like issues and negative aspects of conservation, but also like solving and problem solving. So I, just, I, I find it to be a portal for a lot of information where I just kind of distill through my own filter what I find useful, what I find to be useful directions, what I find to be concerning and just kind of give a framework of what's going on. And then you can see my product on YouTube right now. And then uh, I hope to and plan to travel around with uh, a bunch of my exhibits once I get uh, one more piece in. And once I start to work on that piece, that piece will be, there will be a, a workflow, a project, a, a sort of a, um, a sharing of the process on my Instagram and on my YouTube. So those are the three places where you can find me. And then the DeviantArt where I, uh, I, I post uh, or need to get better at and more disciplined with posting uh, pictures of my art. We all, yeah. And, and just the last thing is what's next for you in terms of projects? You know, just before we let you get back into your natural environment of your studio, uh, well, what have you got going on right now? I'll just show you. Well, right now, throughout my years, I've been collecting the skulls of... Uh, Lions, things predatory, and I, I, in the wake of Lion King coming out, I did a whole video about hyenas. It is very rudimentary, and I, 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 I see a lot of mistakes in what I did, but I aim to um, talk about uh, the, the carnivores that surround us, the things whose, the animals whose teeth and fangs have marked uh, and traumatized us uh, throughout our evolutionary history and has been a force throughout our evolutionary history and ultimately made us who we are today at the fangs of lions, tigers, and hyenas. And I want to talk about them and what makes them cool and what makes, uh, and why understanding them, understanding them through the perspective of their skulls, of their tools, can we better understand them in the context of their landscapes and in the context of um, their impact on them and their impact on us. Because it's one thing to see a lion out there and it's another one to understand the lion from this perspective here when you're, his teeth and fangs are right there in the presence of your physicality and you could just see, oh, this thing feels like a lion. And therefore, and then from there, 
replicas like this involve not the killing of another animal, but the casting of previously killed animals. And when in the hands of other people in the local communities, the monster in the woods is still a monster, but there he is. He's confined. And he's not much, and he's not much different from you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the, co the, the connection you um, enable people to it's see. It's profound. I find myself every day, like after reading the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn and understanding the context from where I come from and my heritage and my, and my, and my flesh and blood has, have come from, I find myself profoundly responsible for, for bringing this body of knowledge together and I find myself in a very weird situation where I find myself so in the middle of all of these domains and um, there is no, I find, I find, I feel no, I see no way forward where I don't share that knowledge, where I don't at least attempt to create a sort of a movement and unify people under this because the time is now. It's, it's profoundly now, it's profoundly earth, it's profoundly, it's profoundly today. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, likewise, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. We are excited to share the details of our next Berlin workshop, which will be on November the 14th at 7pm at the Moxie Osbahnhof. The subject of this particular workshop will be human connection in an age of technology, digitization, and information overload. For more information or to book your place, visit www.themindtakeaway.com slash workshops dash Berlin. Thanks for listening to the Mind Takeaway podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share with your friends.